Distance, aka responsible, proper social distance shit talking from spare bedrooms across exurban Atlanta, Detroit, Michigan, and San Jose, California. Welcome to the Godless Heathens Podcast, everybody. Thanks for listening. I'm Don. I'm Jeff. And I'm Jerry. This is a podcast by atheists that talks about a lot of things, not just atheism. We will challenge your assumptions and ours too. Definitely not here to preach to the atheist choir, but to critique, ridicule, and poke fun at anyone, especially ourselves. So join us as we examine the crossroads of politics and religion from the secular perspective. And remember, don't believe everything you hear on this podcast or anywhere else for that matter until you've independently verified it for yourself. In other words, duck, duck, go that shit. We have a very special episode, number 86 of the Godless Heathens podcast. We have a guest with us, Bradley Onishi, who is an author, associate professor of religious studies at Skidmore College in New York State, and has written for the New York Times and the Huffington Post. He's also the host of a favorite heathens podcast, Straight White American Jesus, an in-depth examination of the culture and politics of Christian nationalism and evangelicalism. And that is a description that Jeff could have written. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I would have stuck white in front of the Christian nationalism. You will, later in the show. Yes. Yeah. Welcome, Brad. Go ahead and tell us a little bit about your journey. I, you know, we, I gathered listening to your podcast, and we were kind of talking before about, I think I was introduced to it by, I wanted to find out more from a, one of the authors that I was reading and searched and found she was on your podcast. And so that's how I found you. Kind of learned early on that you had left evangelicalism, but it took me a while to kind of figure out that you left theism as well. So what's your story? I converted to evangelicalism at uh, 14, was pretty extreme in my faith. I went from a guy who never really been to church to a guy who was in high school leading a Bible study at lunchtime and standing outside of movie theaters telling people the gospel and that kind of thing. Was married by age 20, was a minister by age 20, and was in seminary as soon as I graduated uh, from college. About age 23, started to have serious intellectual doubts. They tell you in church, if you read too many books, you lose your faith. And they are correct. And so uh, all of my reading and my investigating led me to want to become an academic. And and at first I thought that would mean being a theologian. You know, I'd have a chance to really explore all the kind of Christian dimensions of the intellect. Soon I honestly found my way, as you said there, uh, out of theism uh, as a whole. And yet I stayed in the religion game. So I am a religious studies professor. And so I'm kind of a weird guy. I, my life is consumed by religion, even though it's not something that I practice. Uh, I identify as secular. I'm actually the co-chair of the Secularism and Secularity Group at the American Academy of Religion. And so my show is, is really trying to give people an insider view of evangelicalism. Uh, we, my co-host and I, have both lived it. We've both been ministers in that space. But we're both now scholars who have a kind of critical view of things and can provide historical lens and a sociological lens on a lot of issues surrounding the religious right, Christian nationalism, and so on and so forth. So did your faith kind of almost burn like a supernova? Really quick? <laughs> really like hot and heavy? 
and then just kind of collapsed onto onto itself? You know, I don't know if it was a supernova. It was more like, you know, it wasn't a, in romantic terms, it was not a fling. It was not a three-day, you know, Romeo and Juliet thing. It was certainly not a a 40-year marriage that falls apart after the kids move out. It was something like a, a really meaningful and important relationship that just after five, ten years, you realize isn't working anymore. And, you know, I was in it about a decade, age 14 to age 24. But like in any relationship that's not working, that last year was really uh, not a good one. I was ministering at church while wondering if I even believed in God anymore, right? And so uh, once I was able to leave the church and go to uh, graduate school in England, I had the freedom to explore all of the the sort of intellectual corners that I wanted to explore, and, and that eventually led me to where I am today. My uncle would say, as he said to me, you know, you went to college and they taught you how to hate God. <laughs> so many atheists have kind of similar stories where they go to college and somebody said, oh, you went to college and now all of a sudden you don't believe in God anymore. And there might be, you know, obviously there's a thread of truth to it. There was for me, at least. You know, when I got to, to the UK for grad school, I, I visited all the different kinds of churches because I thought, well, I've been this evangelical for so long. Maybe I'll go to this high church Anglican place where they have all the liturgy and the smells and the bells and the incense. And, and then I went to the Methodist church and I went to the Baptist church. And and honestly, at some point, I just realized I just I don't want to go anywhere anymore, uh, even though I'm still sort of committed to being as a developed person as I can be. And so, you know, I think that's the story of many non-believers in, in essence. Do you recall if there was like a, a final straw kind of moment where it was like an aha moment? It's like, huh, it doesn't make sense. One of the big ones was the 2004 election was uh, John Kerry versus George W. Bush. And I I had kind of concluded that George W. Bush had been a bad president and, and that the Iraq war was a big mistake and that uh, John Kerry had some ideas that seemed more in line with the gospel as I understood it. When I explained that to my elders, they looked at me and they listened and nodded and then they would say all the same thing. Look, you know, you vote for whoever you want, but John Kerry is pro-choice. And so if you vote for John Kerry, you're voting for the Holocaust of millions of babies. So if you want to vote for a mass murderer, go ahead. But I don't think that that's something I want to do. So that's why I'm voting for George W. Bush. And the thing about that line is that it is so reductive. It turns the political sphere, the public square on one issue, and it's not totally genuine, because as I've argued in, in some things I've written, when you use abortion in, in the way that it was used in that example, you can tell yourself and others that the reason you're taking this this line to vote for George W. Bush or Donald Trump or anyone else is because of your concern about the unborn. But by using that concern as the one and only issue that determines your political life, you get to turn off any concern for anyone else. So the immigrant, the person of color, anyone else in your political life, your community who is suffering, who has been harmed, who is being marginalized, you can say, well, I'm sorry that's happening, but I got to protect these millions of babies. So too, too bad. And in reality, you're saying I'm probably xenophobic. There's a good chance I'm not uh, uh, being upfront about my views on race. And I probably don't really care that much about immigrants because I, I just don't. So I'm going to use this example, this, this issue to kind of like wield that kind of political stick around. To me, that was like, how can I be doing this? This does not make sense. I've got to find 
a way to organize my life that does justice to the complexity of these things. I can't keep doing this. And so that was a big marker for me. And, and it's interesting, too, that, um, that the abortion issue was something that was kind of constructed because the, the segregation, desegregation issue was was not working. That's exactly right. I mean, the, the when you hear that abortion is the number one issue for the religious right, the white evangelical, they may believe that because that's what they've been told in their church. But if you dig out the history, as you're saying, Jeff, and I think you all know this and have talked about it, what started the religious right was was segregation and and the concern about desegregation. Abortion was brought in later as a myth maker. It was an origin myth, but it's a myth. It's not. It does not correspond to the history of this movement. So just a few minutes ago, the House voted to take away committee assignments to George's own Marjorie Taylor Greene. <laughs> Do you have any and kind of instant reaction to that or to her kind of ascension in general? Uh, many thoughts on this one. So the first one is, you know, I believe, and I have to go back and check because it just happened, but I believe it's nine or 10 Republicans voted with the Democrats for taking her off those committees. You think about the things that Marjorie Taylor Greene has said re recently, not not 20 years ago, but in the last two or three years, has said that Nancy Pelosi deserves to have a bullet in her head, has said that Sandy Hook and Parkland and Las Vegas were hoaxes, maybe the same with 9-11. Jewish space lasers are uh, the cause of certain wildfires in California. She is the QAnon congresswoman. The QAnon is a conspiracy that is damaging our public sphere. She was also tweeting on uh, January 5 that tomorrow will be a revolution and uh, we will see that the country will never be the same. So it's good that she's lost her committee assignments. She needs to be expelled. And the reason she hasn't been is simple. It's A, the Republican Party is it's very hard to tell the difference between the extremes and the and the mainstream at this point. Uh, second, though, and, and this is something I, I really feel quite passionate about, is there was talk of trying to remove Ilhan Omar from her committee assignments because the right and the GOP were saying, oh, she's the same as Marjorie Taylor Greene. And I, I just think this is a great example of Christian privilege in our public sphere. Marjorie Taylor Greene is a white Christian woman. I just named the things that she has claimed that are extremist, that are conspiratorial, that are lies, and that are that are threats. She has made threats against public figures. Ilhan Omar uh, is called all the time on Fox News a racist, and that is a result of some comments she made about Israel. Now, if you go examine those... They were called out from, from different corners of the political and public spheres. Ilhan Omar apologized. She provided a nuanced explanation of her comments and then said, I was wrong and I need to improve. Now, I'm not claiming Ilhan Omar is perfect. I'm not claiming I agree with everything she does all the time. That's, who cares about that? That's not the point. The point is this. You can't make Marjorie Greene and Ilhan Omar the same. I'm sorry. Be, just because she's a black Muslim immigrant doesn't mean you get to paint her as not a real American and not fit to serve. Marjorie Taylor Greene is not fit to serve because of her actions and her statements and her threats. And yet, if you turned on Fox News yesterday, it was seven or eight hours of why Ilhan Omar is worse than Marjorie Taylor Greene. One commentator said, Marjorie Taylor Greene's kind of silly or kooky. Ilhan Omar is, is a dangerous racist. To me, that is just front and center how Christian nationalism 
and white Christian privilege affects our public square. And I know you guys talk about this all the time and, and you all have, uh, you know, very good sort of analysis of this and, and opinions on this. And so I'm, I'm curious what you all think, too, about about what's happening with uh, with Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and especially coming from from Georgia and, and your home state. So the county I live in, I think, borders her district. Uh, she's that close. Wow. Yeah, because they kind of gerrymandered that a few years back. Yeah, she's from Alpharetta. At least that's where her father's business was that she was working in. She's from Milledgeville, which is middle Georgia. But when the Republican that was in this district, when this district was created, it's only been like 2006 or something like that, I want to say, that they created this district. Uh, When he decided not to run again, she moved to one of the poorest districts in the state and, and ran. I mean, how does it look from your from y'all's sort of perspective? On one hand, we've got Warnock and Ossoff and Stacey yeah. Abrams doing what they're doing. And then on the other hand, statewide, we're not bad. It's when you get us in little pockets. That, that's when <laughs> we start getting, you know, a, a little shifty. Got it. <laughs> They've had news reporters from local stations and, and local papers that have interviewed people from her district that are on board with her 100 percent. Yeah. Talking to the guy at the local barbecue place in Dallas, Georgia or wherever was down with the program. So it's scary. Right. I mean, that's the thing is, 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 you know, she ran in a primary and the guy she ran against, a Republican, he was a doctor, well-respected in the community and all that. But apparently he wasn't Trumpy enough for the people in her district. So, yeah, I mean, you know, she's just a spokesperson for the crazy in that part of Georgia. Is she, though? When you say that she is a spokesperson, the scary part to me is how much of a constituency she has. Not just outside of her district, but how the whole right-wing media apparatus has swung around into her favor. And now she's been, not only, and they designed it this way, but not only is she getting more popular, but now she's a victim. And, th- and there's nothing more they love than to claim victimhood and oppression on, on behalf of the, the liberal media and the elites and all these bogeyman terms that they use. I'm afraid that all of this righteous and worthy work, again, has to be done by Democrats because the Republicans won't police themselves and will use it against Democrats overall. They have completely, how, how did any liberal really feel feeling sorry or kind of pulling for Liz Cheney? <laughs> We're going to be fans of Liz Cheney now? Like what world would yeah. we live in? Because if you said that yeah. a year ago, you'd be like, you know what? In yeah. a year, you're going to be- You're going to be pulling for Liz. Yeah, you're going to be on the Liz train. <laughs> like there's no way- <laughs> But I'm afraid she's going to be more popular. And it almost feels a little, and I'm not, I swear I'm not a Star Wars nerd, but I'm going to do a Star Wars nerd analogy here. That the more the establishment tries to step on her, the more powerful she becomes because she is representative of the dark side. And I worry about the future. Well, I worry about the future in general, you know, pretty much every podcast. (laughs) <laughs> that that's on brand that's for my you. brand but she is going to be a victim now like I, I i wouldn't i don't watch tucker carlson but he's going to froth at the mouth tonight how long do you think 
it would be if she was expelled from the uh, from from the house before she had a primetime show on OAN or Newsmax a week. Yeah. Tops. <laughs> Probably not that long. But by the end of the week. One of the things that, that I agree with, with what Jerry was saying is just martyrdom is the fuel for the, the religious right, for Christian nationalists. Uh, if you believe the country is yours and anytime anyone wants to make inroads in terms of equity or inclusion and and also should we should say accountability just calling you on your accountability you know being accountable for your words and actions victimization is what fuels you and you know i, I was telling someone the other day that i remember when i taught my dad to text and i kind of regretted it because then all of a sudden you know like 10 years ago he learned how to text and he was like texting me like all the time like hey what's up and i remember having to tell him like dad i'm not going to do this like if you want to talk let's just what do you need? If not, let's not just be texting what's up all day. Why am I bringing that up? I'm bringing it up because the GOP learned the word cancel culture like six months ago. And now anytime you want to hold anyone accountable, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, you're cancel culture. And it's like, I'm not cancel culture. I just don't want you to be making death threats against your colleagues in Congress, promoting conspiracies or planning insurrections. That's all I'm asking. I'm not trying to cancel anyone. So I agree. She's only going to be propelled forward in certain in certain spaces of the media and in the in the GOP. It's like AOC reminding Ted Cruz that he tried to have her killed just exactly. a few weeks ago. My fear is I think we're seeing this by the vote also how tilted it was. You know, Republicans voted against. Are you saying they went down party lines? Right. Yeah. And, and so that kind of tells me. And then you know the the discussion they had on on Cheney the other night is that the party is Trump is white Christian nationalist and anti-democratic, just like, you know, Christians are. So that's my fear is, you know, there is no resemblance of the Republican Party anymore. And so people to kind of think that we could, you know, work across the aisle, I, I'm just not seeing how that's possible with, with this current structure. You know, I don't think that unity is a bad goal. I also think that unity is impossible without accountability and without integrity. You know, like I've been thinking about this, you know, if you have a family member who's really unhealthy and toxic and, and has ways of behaving that are just not okay, you can't have a good relationship with that family member until they're willing to get help and kind of recognize how their actions are really hurting others. You just can't. And that's not best for you. And it's not best for that family member. Everyone involved needs to sort of uh, get on board in terms of developing a better personal ethos. Well, how do you have unity with a party that won't stand up to Marjorie Taylor Greene? I mean, we're not talking about Paul Ryan. We're not talking about Mitt Romney. We're not talking about even Liz Cheney. We're talking about Marjorie Taylor Greene. Jewish space lasers put a bullet in Pelosi's head, Marjorie Taylor Greene. And so if 90% of them can't vote against that, then how are you supposed to tell the difference between the extremists, the fringe, and the mainstream in this party anymore. I mean, the Mitt Romneys and the Kinzingers uh, and the Cheneys are a small, small, small minority. It's it, it, they are minuscule in the GOP at this point. And unfortunately, the supposed adults in the room, from McCarthy to Rubio to Cruz to whoever it is you you think is supposed to be the adult, has made their bed and is willing to bet their political future on Trumpism and Magism. And so that's where we're headed. So what you said, though, really, was that extremists are now the mainstream. And in our lifetimes, that's never happened. I don't even know. I mean, I'm not a historian, but I don't know other than like, you know, going back to the Civil War. 
the extremists have taken over the party where they are now mainstream, and we are not equipped to handle it. We don't know how to deal with it. We don't know how to deal with the establishment being so extreme and out there. The media doesn't know how to handle it. The Democrats really don't know how to handle it. The voters don't know how to handle it. We're in this giant stage of commotion. And I was going to say when the dust settles, but there's no guarantee the dust ever settles. Yeah. So what do you do? What do we do? And it's not like, hey, we're going to have the professor on and we're going to ask him all kinds of advice. But then again, <laughs> you know, here we go. How do, how do we deal with that? I think you're right that, that this is unprecedented for a long time in either party. I want to be clear. When we say extremists here, and this is what gets me, we're not even talking about policy. We're talking about anti-democratic dispositions. We're talking about inciting violence. We're talking about overthrowing elections. This is not a situation where someone left of Bernie Sanders has gained control of the Democratic Party and is pushing policies that appear to the American public as way, way, way out of the mainstream. This is not a situation where even Barry Goldwater from 1964 is showing up with just some really sort of ideological extreme policy type of, of propositions. We're talking about extremism in the form of democracy is not our preference because it doesn't give us power. So we'll overthrow it if we have to. We will incite violence if we have to. And then when their violence happens, we'll try to do everything we can to make you forget that it happened, right? That's one. I think two, you're right that we're not used to it. To me, it feels like you ever do exercise in a way that you're not used to. So we all know, like, if you go walking or running for 10, 20 years, you use certain muscles and yeah, they're sore, but you know, you're used to that. And then like you go do something, someone says, Hey, come do this thing. And for some reason you say yes. And you, you go, whatever it is, you know, you go skiing and you're not a skier or you go, uh, you go do some crazy CrossFit gym thing. And what you realize is it's not just that you're sore. It's that muscles you didn't even know you had are like atrophied and just, really out of shape. Well, we just have a lot of muscles right now as a body politic we haven't used in a long time. And so you're right. The media doesn't know how to do it. The public doesn't know how to do it. Every time I see Chuck Schumer, I'm pretty sure I think he doesn't know how to deal with it. And so I think all that is correct. What do we do about it? I think number one is we've got to recognize where we are. This is where, you know, Jerry, you're saying you're the one who's who's often pessimistic. Well, Pessimism is okay if, if it's real and realistic, and, and that's where we are. We had an insurrection at our Capitol a month ago. One party is trying to erase that already. One party is already trying to move forward along the lines that incited that insurrection. There is no way to look at this scenario and say that we are in a good place, a healthy place, or one or two steps away from getting back to where we were as a healthy, high-functioning democracy. And it's exhausting. And I think one of the things that is so hard about this moment is so many of us are coming down from the Trump presidency. We've, we've unclenched certain psychological and emotional muscles so that some of us are just exhausted. It's like when you try to hold it together for a long week and fight off the cold, and then when the weekend comes, you that you finally get sick because you, you let your body relax. Well, it seems like that's where a lot of us are. We're gonna have to find the reserves to kind of realize this is probably not the end of the Trump presidency. It's probably the beginning of the secession of MAGA nation. Unless we can sort of get that clear-eyed vision we're never going to sort of be able to reckon with it in any clear way. And that goes for the media, too. You know, one of the things we talk about a lot on our show and I talk about with other people is you have to take the kid gloves off. You have to realize 
that religion was a central part of what happened January 6th. And you can't treat Christians like Mr. Uh, Ned Flanders on The Simpsons. It's no longer the irritating Bible thumper down the road. It is Mr. Burns. It's the authoritarian, scheming, ruthless person trying to, to control your entire community and life. Unless we do that, we're not going to get anywhere. And so I think that's where we have to start. And that's that's at least something we can begin with as a public and as people trying to report on these things. You know, a good example of that was, and that was an article that I, I shared with you, and I'm sure you've read it, in The Atlantic, uh, mm-hmm. one titled, The Capital Rioters Are Not Like Other Extremists, which was a good article in many respects. You talked about this with uh, Dr. Kelly Baker a few weeks back, and the media does this. They, they attempt to stereotype the typical Trumper as being a country bumpkin, ignorant, you know, without a job, that kind of thing. White, unemployed, 25 to 35. Right. Yeah. And so this article really did a good job on pointing out the fact that most of these guys were not bad off. CEOs, IT professionals, accountants. <laughs> a lot of them came from urban areas, but they totally missed the fact, you know, they didn't ask the question about, so what religion are these guys? Yeah. Because that, to me, that's the important part that, you know, the media seems to keep intentionally overlooking i don't know i don't know exactly why i do it has to be intentional it has to be i totally do they never ask about it they never ask about it it is only brought up in very very specific kind of typical situations there is no way a mainstream media network is going to come out and basically attribute that to religion there is no way ever and jeff that's why the Christian nationalist part, and maybe we can save that for later in the conversation, but that's the part where it leaves me kind of cold. But they're never going to mention it. So we know that. So now what? Yeah, I think you all are right. And I think for me, what this comes down to is, so think about Billy Graham, right? Billy Graham was the confidant or friend of what, eight presidents? You know, Billy Graham is caught on tape with Nixon making anti-Semitic comments. Okay, no one cares. And then Billy Graham dies and he lies in state, right? He, he, he is treated as a statesman in our country, okay? We have a national cathedral. So, you, you know, you go to D.C., you go up the hill there, there's a national cathedral, and you say, well, it's not officially connected to the government. Okay, great. Where are all the ceremonies? Where are all the rituals? They're at the national cathedral, right? So what's my point? My point is, is... Part of what the media is not used to, part of what a lot of folks are not used to, is treating certain forms of Christianity and, and, and certainly Christian nationalism in the ways that they are very ready to treat Ilhan Omar and her, her Muslim religion, right? The impulse in this country is to treat Islam as enemy number one and as a threat and to treat Christianity as a true American sort of upstanding citizen kind of uh, ethos, right? Well, what I'm saying here is there's just the muscle memory to realize the religious dimensions of this movement is not there. And that's why we do our show. That's why so many, I mean, that's why you, y'all, what y'all are doing is important. Everyone who's trying to get this message across to help explain what went on on the 6th and for the four or five years before that and the 75 years before that, this is something we have to do because if we don't, uh, we're going to miss it. We're going to be talking about economic anxiety and everything else rather than the, some of the, you know, the real issues driving this. And that's a problem. 
And 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 that's where I, that's a really good place to start in terms of what we need to do. But look, the Billy Graham effect is real. Billy Graham is the all-American man uh, as a white Christian preacher, and that has not gone away yet. I mean, you know, if you think about uh, when the media does talk about religion, there's a pipeline from evangelicalism to the the legacy newspaper. So Emma Green and and Sarah Pulliam Bailey, these are people who work at the Atlantic and the and WAPO, and, and they do good work. I'm not out here trying to denigrate everything they do or, or anything like that by any means. What I will say is, where did they graduate from? Wheaton College, right? So even the people who are tasked with that religion beat are often insiders who are very reluctant to sort of not pull punches because they come from the community, even if they recognize some of the problems it has. Yeah, I think part of the problem is most Americans don't understand what evangelicalism is, you know, how it was born in the South prior to the Civil War. And, you know, like Biden, we talked about in the last podcast, mentioned God and things more, almost as much as Eisenhower was the last president that mentioned it as much. But that gets a pass because it's all one monolithic kind of Christianity. They don't understand the what evangelicalism really is and the danger of it. And so that's kind of a hot topic, I think, that the media wants to stay away from. It's also a branding issue, right? So, and I know I know the godless heathens don't want to hear this, so I, I, I know who I'm talking to here, so I know what y'all are going to say. But Biden is the most religious president since Jimmy Carter, okay? He is. And Stacey Abrams, is the the daughter of two Methodist ministers and and Raphael Warnock's a minister. So I and I'm not trying to say that that means they're automatically good people or that that's a good thing. What I'm trying to say is most Americans don't think of them that way because that part of their identity falls off. It melts like snow that that sort of whisks away as soon as it hits the ground. And instead, we think of the Rubios and the Cruises and the Josh Hollies and the Marjorie Taylor Greens as the Christians. And that is part of what's happening here. Because they're the ones that keep reminding us of it. They're the ones that keep putting it in our face that they're Christian. Joe Biden, well, Joe Biden just, he, he just exudes Catholicism. But yeah. Stacey Abrams doesn't remind you constantly that she's religious, like, yeah, like she a Rubio or, or Josh Hawley does. Well, even Warnock, like if Warnock talks about it, you're going to have the likes of uh, Kelly Leffler saying he's not a real Christian and send it back to where he came from. Do you know the public outcry that would come if you said that, Marco Rubio if I, is, is not Wasn't a real a Christian, Christian, and yeah. he should go back where he came from. I mean, you know what I mean? It, it's a much different ballgame on that side. And by the way, former senator, and we can't say this enough, former senator Kelly like That's just like eating a piece of cake. Like I, every time I say it, it's like just a treat. <laughs> well, as soon as the runoffs were announced, we branded ourselves as atheists for Warnock. Like we talked about on, on the last episode, yeah, Biden is probably, the, the like you said, the most religious president we've had since Jimmy Carter. And if that means that he spends his Sunday with a piece of, of wafer in, in, in a church somewhere instead of on the golf course, I'm totally fine with that. Well, and we've said before in this podcast that the Christian left, you know, we're all on board with. I mean, we agree with everything, you know, in their, in their book except for the God thing. But, you yeah. know, the social justice, pro-gay. All of that we're on board with. It's just that one little little sticking point. It's a so, big yeah, thing, I mean, you know. But well, yeah. But I mean, <laughs> we can certainly work together. We can we can unify on all the other things. Yeah, on policy, absolutely. Concentrate on the other ten. Yeah, yeah. Not on the worship thing, but but on policy. 
Well, Brad, look into your crystal ball or into your magic eight ball, whichever the case may be. And, and what do you see as far as immediate and like midterm future with this this whole kerfuffle we, we seem to yeah. find ourselves in? Give us some hope. No, give us the truth. Okay. Well, I'm going to, I'll try. A couple of things I would say is, you know, and I'm, I'm curious what, what y'all think of this just being in Georgia, but I think what happened in Georgia may be a sign of hope in the sense that many people are saying online and, and Twitter and other places that, you know, we don't have red states in the South. We have gerrymandered states in the South. We have voter suppressed states in the South. If something like what happened in Georgia and Stacey Abrams and, and all the other groups that uh, contributed to that can happen in Louisiana or in uh, Florida or in Texas, then I think that is reason for hope. And I think that we might see in our lifetimes the reversal of the Southern strategy that has basically taken hold of the South since Nixon in the 60s. So that that to me is something to look out for. And I think something that's very promising. On the other side of things, however, I just don't see any reason to believe that there is the resources in the GOP to squash the extremists who, as Jerry said, have become the mainstream. In the short term, we're seeing this happen now. And again, I know we're all so tired. And I also know that as it happens every day, it's hard to notice it. But we are seeing the attempted erasure of the 1-6 insurrection now. We're seeing that the, the attempted sort of kind of forget about it and, and water under the bridge take already from the GOP. If that is what they are willing to do when a violent mob erects gallows outside of our capital, hoping to hang the vice president, there is no reason to think that this is not what's going to be our future. Whether that is at state capital houses, whether that is at various elections or polling places or repeats of what happened in Charlottesville in 2017, the Republican Party is this now. That's not me being biased. That's not me being incendiary. That's me saying, when I look at Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and Kevin McCarthy, uh, I see a lot more of them and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and, and Madison Cawthorn than I see of, for better or for worse, and I can't believe I'm saying this, Liz Cheney or yeah. Mitt Romney. <laughs> That's one. You know, I think, two, it's yet to be seen who is going to take the helm of MAGA Nation. And I, I do mean that. I don't think this is going away. It's just a matter of regrouping. And what I've been arguing on my show and in my writing is, if you look at this failed coup and Trump's presidency as the wrap-up, as the conclusion, I think you've got the wrong lens. Hitler tried it in 1923. He didn't succeed until 1933. The South lost the Civil War, and yet we got Jim Crow, and we got lynching, we got the Chinese Exclusion Act, we got uh, we didn't have a black senator from the Deep South until Raphael Warnock, right? So this is not the end, it's the beginning. It's just a matter of where the battle line's gonna be drawn, who are the leaders and the players going to be, and are we as a people gonna have the strength to withhold and upstand what is coming? Because I do believe, it, I'm not saying this to be alarmist, and I'm not saying it to get clicks or anything else. I'm saying it because if you look at what's happened since 1-6, it's still the party of Trump. And if you're gonna have a leader like Mitch McConnell be the vanguard of your party, a man who has no moral compass, who has only a pragmatic uh, will to power, then you're going to end up with a moral bankruptcy. On one side, it's going to be filled by narcissists and it's going to be overseen by uh, nihilists like uh, McConnell. And so this is not over. It's just begun. And it's just a matter of 
where the battles are going to flare up and how we're going to react. One of the things that I thought of when we were talking about, so we did flip Georgia on the two Senate seats, but immediately after that, we saw in our own Georgia legislature all kinds of, you know, it's Republican controlled. So all kinds of bills that are coming forth to backtrack on a lot of the, you know, where we've kind of squashed down some of the voter suppression laws. Not backtrack, restore the way that it should be to them. Right. You have to have an excuse to absentee vote now. And you have to have a photo ID. They're all just a means to an end. And the means to an end is to reverse whatever has this abomination that has been happening in statewide elections. People with D's next to their name are getting voted in below the Mason-Dixon line. I don't know what the hell's going on, Jerry. Uh, of, of course they're freaking out. But yeah, so I, th- I think the, you know, the win of the voter fraud thing that's still going on is so now, you know, the uh, Republican legislatures are saying, well, we need to make sure that our voters are, you know, guaranteed it's, it's, a, it's a safe and secure vote. So in doing that, they're going to suppress the vote. That's the only way. And they've admitted that out loud. That's well, the only t- way they take really win. They've enough of the public with this can't trust the system right. narrative for so long that they'll be able to, to, to move that through in, in a lot of states. So that's on us to keep the pressure on, you know, to protest or whatever against those kind of movements. Well, one, th- one thing I was going to ask you about, Brad, too, that we talked about, I think it was on the last podcast, my little glimmer of hope and Jerry dashed it real quickly. <laughs> it's my brand. <laughs> I, I was kind of hoping, and we, we saw some corporations kind of back off in some of the contributions to some of these Republicans. I kind of think that corporations don't want an oligarchy. Uh, you know, I, I think they still are kind of a, you know, kind of uh, like a um, democracy. So do you think there's any power left in corporations or is that like, Wish, wishful thinking that, that that's going to be part of the solution. You know, my sense is that those advertisers and investors and contributors in, in the corporate world, they, they do what's best for their bottom line. And so if if they see an outcry against the insurrection and Josh Hawley, then look, they'll pull the support. Uh, what I've seen with the Tucker Carlson show is that, you know, whenever he says something so beyond the pale that there's a kind of trending on Twitter situation, you see some advertisers pull out. And they they write a little letter and say, hey, we're 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 not going to support him anymore. And then if you check back six weeks later, they're they're right back to advertising on the show once everyone's forgotten about it. You know what I mean? So I don't think they're going to help us. They're certainly not going to lead or guide. Uh, They will follow and they will do what is best for them when it comes to profit. And so to me, what's more important, and I think that the comment about just the state houses and the local elections is actually really key because Let's take Obama's presidency as an example. Obama wins the White House in 2008, and there's a lot of sort of democratic relief and joy and victory dancing, which is great, and it makes sense why. The Dems get destroyed in the the, the midterms uh, in the in the following cycle, but more importantly, they get destroyed on state levels. I mean, if you look at the the sort of numbers surrounding state legislatures in the last 30 years. Republicans have controlled them up and down, and that has led to the gerrymandering we've been talking about. And it's also led to the ability to implement these policies and laws on voter suppression and and so on and so forth. And so it's one thing to see uh, Stacey Abrams pull off the impossible on the statewide, and there's no way to downplay how incredible that was. It's another thing to say from Arizona 
to Texas to Louisiana to Arkansas to Ohio as Democrats uh, were going to organize on the local levels for the PTA, the state board, the, the county assessor, and so on and so forth. That is one way, I think, if people are looking for actionable steps, that they can really think about that. How can you get involved in places where the Republican has run unopposed or where they've really had no no uh, real competition? Uh, how can you start to reverse those the, the voter suppression and the gerrymandering and the draconian laws surrounding uh, abortion and other things uh, at a state level? That would make a huge difference. So is that the hope? Because earlier you painted an accurate but pretty grim scenario for the nation overall. And there is this this want or this belief not to believe it. A lot of folks may not think that they think of this nation in terms of American exceptionalism. Yeah. They do without defining it that way. And what has been going on, and you hear it all the time, particularly on social media when something awful happens, this just isn't us. This isn't, you know, who we are. How many times does it have to happen before you say to yourself and to the world around you, this is who we are, and unless we admit that or change and change, it, it's who we're going to be continually. It's a terrible thought that one of our main political parties has been taken over by extremists. And they're trying to memory hole one of the worst days in American history. Do you fight that one local election at a time? I understand that it's super important, but it doesn't feel like it is really up to the task as a whole. I hear you. So I, I'm not trying to, to be any uh, kind of Pollyanna-ish person. You know, one of my favorite thinkers, and I, I know the, the godless heathens will appreciate this. My, one of my favorite philosophers is Albert Camus, who, who was famously an atheist, often talked about the absurdity of existence, right? He, you know, he was so brutally honest. If you read Camus, he, he talks about how in essence, the human condition is absurd, and there's no way to reconcile that absurdity. There's just nothing you can do about it. And, and there's some folks who conclude that Camus is a nihilist, and Camus is just a philosopher of despair. And, you know, the only people that read Camus are the people that hate their life and are depressed and, and not doing well and that kind of thing. And if you look at Camus, it's the exact opposite, right? He recognized the absurdity and difficulty of the situation, and yet... He was always fighting. He was part of the resistance during World War II. He was trying to figure out how to help Al Algeria when it came to freeing itself from colonial rule in France. He was always involved on a local level in some issue, right? And so I get it. It feels daunting. You, you, you log on to social media, you look at Twitter, you, you read the, the newspaper, and you think, how do I change the tide of an entire nation? And the answer is, you got to do your best. You got to Put in your money and your your time and your energy where you can uh, when it comes to these national issues and these national elections and all of those things. But it also just means that this is a country made up of 340 million people who all have their own local context. The GOP has known this for 75 years. They've played the long game. They have said, we may not win today. We may not win every battle, but we're going to win the war. And that's why we're going to fight for the PTA. That's why we're going to fight for the 
you know, the the county uh, board position, whatever it is. I think we've got to recognize the absolute direness of where we are. I think we've got to keep our eye on all of these national issues, Supreme Court, uh, expelling Marjorie Taylor Greene. We've also got to say my locality is the United States and the United, United States is my locale. It's my village. It's my town. It's my city. So I can take one actionable step today. What is that? I can do one thing today with my time or my money or my energy. What is that going to be? That's where you can start. Because otherwise what you get is the absurdity that Camus describes with no willingness or ability to make life meaningful. That's when you get into a bad place. So we've got to find a way to be honest and realistic while also being actionable and motivated rather than inert and 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 full of despair. How do you That's a hard place? Yeah. Yeah, it's extremely hard and even harder with Q. Yeah. And I think all three of us agree with you across the board. But it's amped up or maybe more difficult because of Q, which is now a religion kind of in and of itself, right? It is. I, I think it is, yeah. And I think that's a good that's a good framing for it. You know, I almost look at Q, I look at it like, you know, I have various family members who've, who've been dealing with addiction, right? And I look at Q almost, and I'm not, I hope listeners out there will not feel like this is a blase comparison. I'm not meaning it to be. I'm trying to make a point about how to, to, to react. I look at Q almost as if I'm maybe uh, relating to someone I care about who has an addiction problem. And what I mean by that is when someone has an addiction problem, there's there's days and times when reasoning with them is not going to help. Facts and evidence are, are probably not going to be the antidote to their issue. And yet there's going to be days when there are openings for that, when they are feeling a sense of vulnerability and a sense of isolation and are looking for connection and someone they can trust. And so I'm not going to lie. This is not easy work. I'm not going to tell you that this is stuff I, I can do without a lot of exhaustion and patience. But someone who's in queue is there for a reason. They are scared of the uncertainty of life. They're feeling isolated. They're feeling frightened. They're anxious. I'm not giving them a pass. I'm not exonerating them. What I'm trying to say is if there's moments when you just have to stick by them because you know there'll be other moments when they're open and vulnerable and willing to talk a little bit about what's going on and how there, there may be baby steps towards climbing out of that rabbit hole, that's the work. That's hard work. It's grueling work. But to me, on an individual level, that's the only answer because we all know we've all been there. You go ahead, show up with the facts, show up with the evidence, and you're going to you're going to get caught in the most infuriating conversation of your life because it's not going to work. And I think the parallels are extremely in line with deconstructing Christianity mm -hmm. because you have those moments when somebody is kind of questioning something. And if you come back at them with hard facts or whatever, that's not going to do it. But if you're open to listen and let them kind of explore, that was my deconstruction process was kind of having that safe space where I could question and people would listen. And so I, I definitely see the parallels between deconstructing Q to deconstructing Christianity. The, the hard part is... What do you do when Q is dominating your political life? So on one hand, I think as individuals, if your cousin or brother or wife or husband or whoever is caught up in Q, 
you got to follow that path of trying to care about them even when they do not seem to care about anything else but Q, when they're pushing you away, when they seem like they've really lost their way. That's one level. The other level, though, is if Q is organizing in your city and town and taking over your your you know, your politics and your public sphere, then you have to organize. I mean, to me, it's no coincidence that the Godless Heathens podcast is run by folks in the Deep South, because what the data shows us is if you live in a place that has very active conservative religious groups who are bearing on politics, that is where you're going to have the most active atheist, non-religious, secular groups trying to counteract them, right? And so if that's happening, very much so organization and activism and political mobilization are really important because on an institutional level, you can't let the conspiracy of Q sink into policy. Otherwise, you get a nation of Marjorie Taylor Greens leading you. And that's that's not a place we want to be. So on your interview with Monica Rodden, if I, I, I want to make sure I'm pronouncing her name correctly. Yep. One of the best parts of the conversation was when you talked about the uncertainty, people who are Q fans kind of revel in the uncertainty of the not knowing or if somebody gives you that air quotes fact they have something to deflect it with and Mm -hmm. when and the way you described it it almost seemed impenetrable though and there's going to be a portion that it may be impenetrable but how many people really can you can you reach if they thrive off of the chase yeah, it's the same feeling you have when you're watching a mystery series or reading a mystery novel. Or, right? You're, you're th- why are you turning the page? Because the characters have de- been developed so well? No, you're turning the page because you want to know who killed the butler in the study, right? And you're not sure who it was. And so they, they're thriving on that mystery. But to me, psychologically, what's underneath there is Q is a way to shield themselves from the uncertainties all around them. The, uh, the, the uncertainty of chasing Q is an antidote for the, the uncertainties of their existential situation. Now, the question is, how many people can you reach? The answer is, it just depends on how and what you mean. In one sense, I think a lot of us have people in our lives who are down this rabbit hole or, or others. And again, that is slow plotting work that may feel like I'm not changing my nation's fate right now by just sort of like, uh, being willing to listen to my cousin talk to me about uh, whatever's going on with Q today. On the other hand, if, if there's ways that if there's issues we want to attack here, one of them is just media and and the flow of information. I mean, if if you, we want to talk large scale, we've got to talk about changing our media ecosystem in this country. You don't get this level of collective delusion unless you have a situation where on the night that CNN and MSNBC are covering the memorial to the officer who was killed on 1-6, Fox News is launching a racist attack against Ilhan Omar uh, at the same time. I mean, we are living in a place where, again, the fringe has become mainstream. And so the media and info ecosystem for so many people is toxic. It is polluted. That's just issue number one in my mind in terms of like the collective problem here. And so coming back to the corporation stuff and the the business stuff, that pressure that finally got put on Twitter and finally got put on Facebook to get rid of Donald Trump and the big lie to not allow the MyPillow guy to just spout conspiracy. We've got to see that when it comes to Facebook. We've got to see that when it comes to other places because deplatforming works. Other countries uh, are not perfect, but I tell you, living in, in the UK, living in France, 
the access to the kind of conspiratorial fringe information like you can find on Fox News or OAN or on all of the darkest parts of Facebook, it's just a different ecosystem in other places. And we have just become so accustomed to this as our normal way of life. Some people watch CNN, others watch Fox News, and they live in completely different worlds. And it just so happens that Fox News is often spouting facts that are not facts at all and uh, tinged with uh, racist and xenophobic rhetoric. Do you think that religion is a primer for Q, believing in the unbelievable on face value, the ability to do that in one aspect makes it easy to do it in another? What Q and conspiracy theories in general like it make me think of as this, is that there are times of great societal change, times of collective suffering and uncertainty. And I see that here, right? We've got a pandemic. We've got a changing world. We've got global warming. We've got an economy that is sort of transforming, so on and so forth. In those times, psychologically, many people need comfort. They need a place where they can sort of find answers. And unfortunately, what happens is many folks find answers in conspiracies, in delusions, in illusions. Now, that is why I think Q and evangelical Christianity have been such a sort of natural set of bedfellows. If you are a fundamentalist Christian who is willing to believe literally in the Bible and so on and so forth, then believing in other sort of unbelievable ideas is already part of your your makeup and your network. And so is religion a primer for Q? I don't know. But do they share a sort of underlying psychological mechanics? Yes, I do. I think they do. And I think they come at, uh, from the same place. Fundamentalisms always thrive in times of great uncertainty. The same goes for conspiracies. You know, I always say, uh, as a Californian, I love In-N-Out. And I love it. I love In-N-Out for a lot of reasons. One of them, though, is when you go to In-N-Out, you don't have to think. It's a hamburger or a cheeseburger. That's it. That's it. All right. And when I go to other places, I mean, I went to this taco stand the other day over here by my house, and good God, I couldn't decide because they have the best fish tacos. They've got all these uh, shrimp tostadas, incredible uh, carne asada burrito, carnitas quesadilla, blah blah blah. I mean, I'm standing there for 20 minutes because everything is so uh, dazzling before my eyes, right? Well, when I go to In and Out, it's just cheeseburger or hamburger. I don't have to think and it's already done for me. In an age when everything feels uncertain, like the world is just swirling around you and there's danger from all sides, some people just treat Q and fundamentalist religion like in and out Like, I don't want to think. I want you to sort of give me answers. I want you to tell me what's really going on. I want you to tell me why all the bad people out there who are hurting me are going to go down. I want you to tell me the secret knowledge that no one else has so I feel special. And uh, and that's where we end up now. And, and it's 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 sad. It's unfortunate. But uh, it is it is our situation. Oh, my God. It's psychic comfort food. <laughs> <laughs> Usually I agree. I disagree with Jeffrey Jerry. But on this one, I got to push back a little bit because I, I know on one of your episodes you were talking about how or maybe it was something that you written that. It's with evangelicalism, you go to bed with all the answers. Yeah. Where I think with Q, it gives you the questions. It gives yeah. you the uncertainty that you don't have as an evangelical going to bed. I agree with you, but I, but I, I, here's what I want to say about it is, right, there's a way you can go to bed with without, like if you're an atheist like, like, like y'all are, are, and you go to bed at night, you might think to yourself, tomorrow 
I have so many questions about the world. I can't wait to explore them and investigate yeah. them. Right. Yeah. I can't wait to to sort of dig. I'm a bird watcher. I'm a I'm a botanist. I'm a, a, a kayaker. I don't know what it is you're going to go out in the world and, and discover, but you can't. That, that's one kind of excitement. There's another kind of excitement where you're watching a film or a, a TV show and some crazy supernatural thing happens and you think, well, are, how are they going to explain that? And when you're watching it, because all of a sudden the rules have changed and you're kind of tantalized by the mystery. The reason the questions are so tantalizing is not because you want to explore and find coherence. It's because you're being drugged along by something you think is a sort of supernatural force, right? The way I explain this to my students is we all experience wonder, but there's ways you can respond. Wonder can lead you to questioning that leads you to investigation that leads you to data collecting and uh, making a logical argument about what happened, right? Wonder can also lead you to wonder drunkenness. You just get drunk on the wonder and you stay there. And I think that's what Q does. It allows you to stay drunk on the wonder and, and sort of in this like state of infantile awe rather than having to reckon with what's actually happening and going on around you and doing the hard work to classify, taxonomize, analyze, and so on and so forth. So almost kind of a form of mysticism. Mysticism in the most sort of like escapist way. Right, right, right. Huh, interesting. So it doesn't matter then that the origin was most likely just this giant troll. (laughs) (laughs) Does anybody with Q really want to know where it started? It feels like Jack Nicholson in a few good men that it can't handle the truth. They wouldn't want to hear the truth. But it's obviously gained... They don't want to know the Genesis story. Oh, no. They do know the Genesis story. But the Genesis story, to us at least, is just as fake as Q. I don't think that if you're into Q, you're not there as somebody collecting data to figure what's going really going on. You're there because you found a community with a sort of special knowledge... And they're promising to remedy all the world's evil. And that is so attractive. And so when you approach that person and say, I think Q was just a huge troll who's been sort of dragging people along for eight months or a year or whatever uh, it's been, there's really no interest in sort of snapping out of the drunkenness. I mean, you know, again, the drunkenness thing, right? If, if you're drunk, you know, oftentimes you want to stay drunk because it means you don't have to deal with your problems. You don't have to deal with your issue. You don't have to go home and pay your bills and, and clean up your house and actually be a responsible adult. You can sort of just stay in that place of awe and intoxication. Q gives that to people along with, and this is another part of drunkenness, is community. You get to be out with your friends drunk at a bar rather than actually alone in your apartment having to deal with the hard situation of your life. I think that's what Q offers people. I really do. But that's kind of what evangelicalism does as well. The book of Revelation for them, the end time story that, uh, you know, the Left Behind series and all that, gives them that kind of comfort is in the end... God's going to get rid of all these bad people and just us good people are going to be left to go up to heaven and and all that. So they have the community, they have resolution. I I can't help but see all these parallels to evangelicalism in that. It's almost like evangelicalism is able to do this in what many people consider a more respectable way and a more sort of dressed up way. So, and I know y'all won't agree with that and and I'm I'm not saying that that's true. What I'm saying though is We've been talking here for a while about how the media and American culture in general sees 
Christianity and evangelicalism in particular as this sort of like good old time American religion. You, you, yep. you're, Billy you're, Graham. You, you go to church, you're a good old boy, you believe in God, you serve in the military, you're a, a red-blooded American, and we, we can trust you because of those things, right? But as you're saying, Jeff, underlying that is this set of beliefs that when you start to like look at them, you're like, whoa, wait a minute. You're telling me that a man is going to come in the clouds and end the world, and you all want to talk about cancel culture. He's going to cancel all the people that don't believe in him, send them to hell, and uh, take vengeance on all his enemies. Um, once you start going down that road, I mean, and this is part of my evangelical experience, you kind of think to yourself, this is a this is a little bit much. I'm not sure that this holds together. What Q does is it doesn't take you out to dinner or buy you uh, uh, go to a movie first. There's none of that. I mean, it, Q <laughs> is just right to the thing. Hey, guess what? There are people eating babies who worship Satan, and they're trying to be the pedophiles who run the whole world. So you're either with us or against us, right? I mean, they don't do any of that respectable religiosity. Right. They're, 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 there's none of this, hey, do you want to get a, you know, go to a movie and, and get dinner and then see where things go? It's just simply, you're either with the good people or you're with the pedophiles who are eating babies and worship the devil. You decide right now, get on board, it's your choice. And they need to be executed. Yep. Your opponents need to die. Yep. That's like a main tenet. I will say, I think what Q does, it reduces, like Jeff, it reduces the logic of core aspects of evangelicalism to these very bare bones and then shows you how anti-democratic they are, as Jerry's saying, right? They show you that at the bottom of this is no willingness to listen to those people who disagree with you, who might have a different faith than you, who may have no faith at all in terms of religion, who come from different places or whatever. At the bottom of this is we want to be, we are right, we want the power, and we want vengeance on our enemies. And Q shoves it in your face. Evangelicals like Billy Graham, they hide it behind a, a, a nice suit and tie, a good haircut, a square jaw, and a really nice way of speaking. And to circle back around, that's the danger of Marjorie Taylor Greene. <laughs> yep. That's right. Yeah, because she's shortcutting that stuff. Terrific conversation, and we super appreciate you making the time. I think all of us, though, are curious. <laughs> why the podcast? Like, where did you where'd you get the name? And what is it about podcasts that allows you to kind of spread your wings, I guess, and give you another another way to talk about what's going on uh, you know when you said a lot of us are wondering i was getting ready for a doozy so this is a good this is a nice <laughs> this is this one. is an easier question i thought was coming um i thought i messed up for a second because i was like did i say something wrong because he was no, not no, expecting I was, that <laughs> i was getting ready for something else my co-host is dan miller uh dan and i have very similar stories and i was with dan in amherst mass uh one very cold winter day and i said dan you and I have a unique perspective. We were ministers in evangelical churches. We're now religion scholars. We can talk as insiders. We can talk as critics. And then I said, I think a lot of people in this country think Jesus is a straight white American. That's how they view him. And he's a dude. And he's very clear about him being the man who's in charge. So uh, over a beer, we said, we're going to call it straight white American Jesus. And what it does for me is it's a really nice medium between the kind of very measured 
tone and very measured pace that one has to have as an academic. You know, like when you're an academic, you write an article, you submit it to the journal, like in in February 2021. The journal comes back to you like in October 2021 and says, yeah, we, this is pretty good if you can fix these things. So then you spend, you know, another four months fixing them. You send it back. And then by the time it gets published, it's 2024. And you think, I don't even know if I care about this anymore. Right. <laughs> On the, on, the, on the other hand, it's not just Dan and I sort of ranting. It's not like I have a blog where I just have a couple of whiskeys at night and start just stream of conscious sort of writing whatever I feel like, and we'll see what happens in the morning kind of situation. On our show, we try to draw a nice medium, a balance between a very direct line to our audience. Hey, we, we have some stuff happen this week. Let's talk about it. But we're going to do our best to talk about it in a way that's based in, in logic and evidence and in a way that provides a hopefully a perspective that is developed in uh, sort of religious studies ways and, and historical ways that go just beyond some just, again, like stream of consciousness or, or whatever it may be. So that has been a great medium for me. It, it's really nice to have just sort of the ability to reach an audience quickly and directly, but also to do so in a way that's sort of logical and coherent and structured, at least in some some fashion. So well, just like a straight white American Jesus, also the Godless Heathens podcast. It's nice to not have a shortage of topics here <laughs> to deal with you know, <laughs> on a weekly or in our case, a biweekly basis. We don't even talk about what we're going to talk about three to four days before we record because it's useless. It's going to because change. Yeah. 48 to 24 hours before we decide, you know, before we start to record is when something's going to happen that we need to talk about. The, the other thing I'll say, too, is is this medium allows for what we're doing right now. Like, I, I'm so happy to have been invited to talk to you all and, and to, to get to meet you all. I would not have met you before if, if we no, weren't doing absolutely. this. If you, if, and if, if if you were having a blog and I had a blog, I, I don't think I'd be... Who knows? Yeah. ...inviting you over here to write on my blog. I, that's not what would happen. Right, so right. I guess my point is, I get to make so many new friends and colleagues because of this. And, and that's one of the best parts is... Uh, I don't think we would have been able to connect outside of this medium, but here we are. And, and uh, you know, to me, that's pretty good. So, Absolutely. Most definitely. I got a side question. I'm going to take you down a little rabbit hole, and, and I may keep this in. I may cut it out. I may put it as a Patreon extra or something. I don't, I don't know. But <laughs> I I read your New York Times article. Shout out. I'll put a, I'll put a link to your, New, your latest New York Times article. While I listened to it, growing up here in Georgia, I couldn't help but think of the shrine to Confederacy as a religion in the South that Stone Mountain is. And if mm-hmm. you don't know what Stone Mountain is, when it's safe to move about the country again, I invite you to Georgia and I will take you. And I will show you Stone Mountain, and and you will see it with, with your own eyes. Are, are you familiar with it? Got to do the laser show. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> are are they, are they Jewish lasers? Or? <laughs> they, don't, they don't start fire. Have, have you ever heard of Stone Mountain before? Oh yeah. Oh yes, okay. very right. much so. Right. And um, actually, my wife was uh, was a program director for a program that used to take uh, scholars of religion from other countries around around the United States, and and. They would go to important places. So they would go to like Salt Lake City and visit the Mormon, okay. uh, the okay. Latter-day Saints. And they would always go to Stone Mountain. That's because definitely of, because one to me. go to. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. And so um, to me, Stone Mountain is is an example par excellence of the kinds of Confederate civil religion I'm talking about uh, in that piece. The entire time I read it, I could not stop thinking about it. Growing up in Georgia, every year 
it was the school, one of the school, Six Flags, Stone Mountain, a couple of Braves game. You always did something like that, and you didn't think about it. And you think about it now, it's like horrific. It, it, absolutely a shrine to the Confederacy. But th- and think about it as you're growing up as a kid, you're taught this is where we go because this is what we need to learn about. This is what citizens need this to know. This is normal. Yeah, this, this is, is this normal. Is, well, the offer still stands. If you're going to lay over in the Atlanta airport, I will take you to Stone Mountain, sir. By all I, means. I, I would <laughs> believe me. I'm I'm pandemic has made me miss a lot of things. And one of them is the South. And I like I said, I used to live in Memphis and um, in Virginia and uh so it, it's funny. My wife and I have been daydreaming about where are we going to go when things are safe? And, and, you know, we've been saying we need to go to New Orleans and then we need to go to Memphis and then we need to go to Atlanta and see all the folks that we, we miss from those places and that kind of stuff. So uh, I, I hope someday soon when the pandemic's passed, we can we can take you up on the offer and, and have that. We, visit. We will be take great. you to one of our favorite breweries here, here okay. in the local Atlanta area. Well, if you're off the seltzer, you know. <laughs> <laughs> You know where you should where you should really go for definitely though is Montgomery because mm. you should go to the Civil Rights Museum in downtown yep. Montgomery and go to the memorial, which is just amazing. And I can't remember what it's called, and I don't want to call it the lynching memorial, but that's what it is. And yep. it is super well done, and it is hugely moving. And the fact that it's in downtown Montgomery is actually that much more powerful that it's there because there's no way, no way it would get done in 2021. There's no chance that it would happen. No. It wouldn't get past a committee. No. It, 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 is, it is really, really powerful. Everybody should, should go. All right, I'll get off my soapbox. But thank you, you for your time. It is terrific conversation. Absolutely. Le- absolutely enjoyed having you with us. We usually end the end the podcast with recommendations. We got one this week. Check out White American Jesus. Straight White American. I did a Jeff. <laughs> Jeff always leaves the straight off. Straight White American. I'm not cutting this. I'm not editing this out. Straight White American Jesus. And check out the podcast. You need to Do add yourself buff a favor. in there, though. And you always right. leave the and straight off. Toting. Every time. Toting. And I pulled a Jeff. I got Jeffed. <laughs> well, no, th- th- thank you all for having me. And it's 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 been great. And uh, I, I really appreciate it. And I hope we can talk again. And uh, I hope we can meet in person when, when everything's back to normal. Oh, that would be awesome. Great. Look forward you. to it. Absolutely. We'll see you all in a couple weeks. Wherever I go, Sinatra goes, Frankie is my friend and love him.